Hello and welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gens. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. So excited to welcome you to the second episode of our mini-series on William Faulkner's mystery slash detective fiction. I love doing these little mini-series, especially when they have something to do with spookiness or mystery. I loved the Edgar Allan Poe mini-series we did. You all can check that out either in the completed series tab on our website, relevanceofliterature.com, or you can go back even to our show catalog, our list of all the episodes we've done. We've done almost, what is it now, over 300 episodes, getting to that 400 mark soon. Super excited, y'all. I'm so grateful that we've been able to podcast for many years now. (laughs) This is our sixth year of podcasting. What an exciting time to be on the show. So we are going to go over Monk by William Faulkner. This is the second detective fiction story that William Faulkner wrote. Again, talking a little bit, taking some of the content from the last episode about Smoke by William Faulkner, which you should definitely go back and listen to if you haven't already. Um, I love that short story. There's so much richness to dive into. Much I, de- I delve much more uh, deeply into that short story than I will Monk, since Monk is so short. We'll talk a lot about the biographical info of this short story um, and a lot of interesting quirks about it as well. Um, but stealing from that, there's an edition of Night's Gambit by William Faulkner. It's a short story collection with Faulkner's six different mystery slash detective fiction stories. It's edited by John N. Duval, and Duval undertook an academic, amazing pursuit when he looked at compiling the the short stories for this edition. He found all of the different manuscripts and editions and handwritten typescripts from all of these different short stories throughout their histories. Some of the short stories had much more information than others. For example, Monk, um, he discovered a typescript that was not yet, that the Faulkner community was not yet aware of. Um, So there's just so much richness and he takes these original materials and he has edited them and conformed the short stories to the closest he could get to what William Faulkner himself would have wanted for his final posted short story. As I got into in much more detail last episode, Faulkner had very specific ideas, especially about punctuation, especially like um, contractions and things of this nature. There's some really creative uses of language, which we'll get into later in this episode, um, that were edited to suit the purposes of the publication that the story appeared in. 
And so there's a lot of edits that Faulkner did not necessarily, that did not come from Faulkner. <laughs> Faulkner would not have necessarily heralded them, um, aside from the needs of this particular publication, whichever one it was. So this short story, Monk, was published in Tribner's in May of 1937. That was its first original publication date. I'm going to tell you the history via a quote on page XIX. This is still the introduction um, from Duval himself. Quote, when the Saturday Evening Post rejected a story, Schribner's was often Faulkner's plan B. If the Post was middle-class America's favorite magazine, Schribner's was upper middlebrow, one of the quality group that included Harper's and the Atlantic magazines, as Frederick Lewis Allen notes in his January 1937 piece in Schribner's celebrating the venue's first 50 years that were edited for the quote-unquote educated classes. Between 1931 and 1937, Faulkner placed nine stories in this magazine, a venue that regularly published stories by Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Thomas Wolfe, and Caroline Gordon. Ironically, although the quality of fiction published in Tribner's during the 1930s may represent the pinnacle of its literary reputation, circulation was rapidly declining." Unquote. That was again page XIX in the introduction. So you can kind of see like why these different magazines had different goals with regard to their different publications. Some magazines, because of the audiences they were serving, had different thematic goals or different uh, style goals. And Schribner's here, I can definitely understand why <laughs> Monk um, was something that would appeal to these uh, upper, the upper quality group people, so to speak. Um, there's just, there's something so intellectual about Faulkner's writing. There's something that when I read Faulkner, I find him very challenging to read, even the non-stream of consciousness realm, which is definitely these stories. These are not like, there's no sound and fury here. There's that element of southernness here. There's a lot of like deep, um, deliberating prose, and there's a lot of confusion. Like he's just, he kind of, he writes these sentences where you get lost in the sentence-to-sentence um, story of what he's trying to say sometimes, at least I do, that's my experience of reading him, but, you know, in terms of what Schribner's wanted and what Monk presents, I can definitely understand, you know, the, the draw there. Um, so, again, this is the second of his six detective stories featuring Gavin Stevens, his detective hero, uh, similar to Dupont, if you know the Edgar Allan Poe short stories. Um, the first, they're said to be the first mystery or detective fiction that was ever written. Um, you know, it's gothic era for Poe, so that's pretty early, honestly. Um, so there's, there's a lot of debate about it, but in terms of what we've gone through, that's what sources have consistently said is Poe first detective fiction, and now here we have uh, Faulkner, much more contemporary <laughs> comparatively version, but uh, yeah, here we go with the plot. So there's a character central to the story, as you can guess, named Monk. 
Monk has mysterious or rather unknown origins. The narrator of this short story, as with the others, is Gavin Stevens' nephew. And we hear a lot more about the nephew, or at least he takes a much greater part in the story in the next uh, story in this edition, the next story that Faulkner wrote. Um, but Monk is just a mysterious character. I'm gonna quote from page 28 of the short story collection. This is the first page of Monk. Quote, I will have to try to tell about Monk. I mean, actually try, a deliberate attempt to bridge the inconsistencies in his brief and sordid and unoriginal history, to make something out of it, not only with the nebulous tools of supposition and inference and invention, but to employ these nebulous tools upon the nebulous and inexplicable material which he left behind him. Because it is only in literature that the paradoxical and even mutually negating anecdotes in the history of a human heart can be juxtaposed and annealed by art into verisimilitude and credibility. He was a moron, perhaps even a cretin. He should never have gone to the penitentiary at all. But at the time of his trial, we had a young district attorney who had his eye on Congress, and Monk had no people and no money, not even a lawyer, because I don't believe he ever understood why he should need a lawyer, or even what a lawyer was. And so the court appointed a lawyer for him, a young man just admitted to the bar, who probably knew but little more about the practical functioning of criminal law than Monk did, who perhaps pleaded Monk guilty at the direction of the court, or maybe forgot that he could have entered a plea of mental incompetence, since Monk did not for one moment deny that he had killed the deceased." Y'all, my allergies <laughs> this past week have been terrible. Germany is so lovely and green, and I love, like, just a lot about it, <laughs> but here we are with really bad allergies. I'm really hoping that my uh, Zyrtec will come in handy <laughs> sometime soon. Um, so if there's any sniffles or anything, I'm not sick, don't worry, it's just allergies. This first paragraph where Gavin Stevens is equivocating about what's, you know, how he's going to tell this story and, you know, the import of literature on the telling of the story. Oh my goodness, that's such a dense, like, it reminds me almost of Nathaniel Hawthorne or, like, something somebody in the Romantic era would write just about, oh, the high, the highness of literature and the noble goals. Um, so there's just, you know, plainly, Gavin Stevens' nephew is saying, look, there's just a very strange case here, let's tell about it. <laughs> and Monk, we know from the first line of the second paragraph that Monk doesn't have the mental or intellectual faculties to probably have committed the crime that he was convicted of in court. And so that's the kind of tension that runs through this entire story, is Monk, who grows up essentially in the middle of nowhere in the south, nobody knows who his real parents are, Those, there are suppositions as to that, kind of goes to different beneficiaries or benefactor people. Yes, benefactor is the word I was searching for. Uh, he goes to different benefactors and on the way he learns these different trades so he learns like uh alcohol <laughs> making 
um, at a time when there's uh, prohibition. You know, there's Megan Sell whiskey was his trade for a while. Ends up working sort of in town, and there's a man um, who shoots another man in front of him and hands him the gun and basically says, look at what you did. Um, so he's framed for a murder and he's not possessed of the mental faculties to get himself out of that blunder. Instead, he, for the reasons that were explained on page 28, was convicted of this crime. And in jail, Gavin Stevens tries to get him out. And so Gavin Stevens finds the proof. The man who actually was the murderer on his deathbed confesses to the murder and says, this is what happened. I framed Monk. Like, Monk is not supposed to be in prison. Gavin Stevens then takes that and uh, erases his crime, so he's able to get him out of prison, supposedly. After that, though, Gavin Stevens, when he tells this news to Monk, Monk reacts differently than one would normally expect because Monk has become the almost worshipper of the warden in the prison. He's become like the pet of the warden and so his whole life, like he's even knitting a sweater for the, for the warden, so his whole life is tied up in making sure that this warden is well cared after. I think there's a lot of parallels here, right? Like his early life, you know, his different people who have taken him on, he does his best to conform to that person and to their talents and their desires and um, their trade in that sense. And so, you know, he becomes this warden's pet. And then in the prison, just before he's released, is uh, convicted with killing the warden with the warden's own pistol. Um, so that's curious, and he ends up going to um, the hanging block because of this crime, um, and he indeed was not guilty of that crime either, um, even though he was, again, framed for it. So Gavin Stevens, after Monk is killed, Monk has this sort of strange end where he starts to equivocate on things that really don't make sense. And so Gavin Stevens later um, puts these strings together because there's a pardon board and he's sitting on these pardon board. Um, he's sitting on this pardon board. He's one of the members and there's this very corrupt like politician slash person involved in the legal system who's issuing all of these pardons to guilty men in order to get political favor. So again, commenting on the corruptness of the legal system and perhaps also the political system. And Gavin Stevens finds another inmate who says the same thing that Monk said right before he uh, was hung. And so clearly this other man is the guilty one. Gavin Stevens unfortunately does not succeed in uh, refusing the pardon to this young man. That young man gets out anyway. Uh, but yeah, it's a it's a kind of actually a heavy story because of the 
innocence of Monk as he goes through these various trials, which it seems like he doesn't really take them as trials. Um, he takes them in innocent and vulnerable stride. Um, and then there are these very knowing, cunning other individuals behind the actual crimes that he, Monk, uh, has supposedly committed. The story ends on quite, not an unsatisfactory note, but quite an unfinished one. Um, when, on page 43, I'll just quote it. Quote, My dear Mr. Stevens, the governor said, you have already convinced me but I'm merely the moderator of this meeting. Here are the votes. But do you think that you can convince these gentlemen? And Uncle Gavin said he looked around at them, the identical puppet faces of the seven or eight of the governor's battalions and battalions of factory-made colonels. No, Uncle Gavin said, I can't. So he left then. It was in the middle of the morning and hot, but he started back to Jefferson at once, riding across the broad, heat-miraged land, between the cotton and the corn of God's long, fecund, remorseless acres, which would outlast any corruption and injustice. He was glad of the heat, he said, glad to be sweating, sweating out of himself the smell and the taste of where he had been, unquote. So you can definitely tell how not unresolved, again, that's that's kind of the word that sticks front of mind here, but just kind of how dismal the ending is. And, you know, there's no rest for the weary, and certainly Gavin Stevens would be part of the weary here. Um, and, you know, there is no justice at the end of the story. Monk is dead, and the different perpetrators were never convicted, at least not legally, for their crimes. In fact, one of them ends up being pardoned due to the corruption of the legal political system. So, yeah, there's just, there's a really, it's just a dismal ending is how I would describe it after, and it's quite a short, short, short story. It's definitely shorter than Smoke and definitely shorter than the one that, that uh, follows it. So I think for such a short short story, there's definitely a finality to it and a weight to it that I didn't expect. Let's get on to the analysis. So there's two levels of mystery here, right? There's the mystery of all of these deaths, like the death of the warden, the death of the man that Monk is first convicted of killing, and then the second mystery is Monk's life. And so Gavin Stevens is the character most concerned with these, this over uh, category of mystery, these deaths. And I think the nephew, to a certain extent, is the one concerned with the mystery of Monk's life. And it's kind of in that way, like a mystery within a mystery. And the narrative as Gavin's, Gavin Stevens' nephew <laughs> mentions in the beginning, there's kind of a beauty that the literature or the literary explanation of this story lends to the whole and the way that these two mysteries, that of Monk's life and that of these different mysterious deaths, the way that these two intertwine is quite, um, quite beautiful, quite remarkable. 
So Gavin Stevens, I think one of the comments that has most stuck with me from the introduction is that Gavin Stevens often doesn't solve the crimes <laughs> that he's uh, detecting over, right? So like, you know, in Sherlock Holmes, like there's always a solution, like in Dupont, there's always a solution. <laughs> there's always some sort of like big, like, if it's a whodunit, you know, as it may be sort of in this one, you know, if there's a whodunit, then like, you know who done it at the end. Um, but here there's just this like mirage of a solution or a close. And that's something that I found to be, and I think continually in this collection as I work my way through it, I find continually to be like, not only frustrating, but deeply impactful as a reader. As a reader, I at least expect somewhat from a lot of my fiction to be satisfied at the end, <laughs> for there to be some sort of resolution. Um, you know, I think of like, I read Jane Eyre recently and there will be an episode on that coming up. But with Jane Eyre, uh, you know, there's a very satisfying ending in my opinion. Um, Emma by Jane Austen, like maybe these aren't good comparisons, but even in some of the other literature I'll mention towards the end of the episode, there's just the endings, the resolutions feel so much more whole and complete. Um, and here, Faulkner is deliberately leaving them kind of lopped off. Um, and that's something, don't get me wrong, that I love about these short stories because it makes them so fascinating and it makes the commentary about the legal system, for example, even more biting. I think another big theme in this short story, as in the others, so this is my this might be something we touch upon again, but victimization is such a huge theme and it's discussed in a poignant way with regard to Monk. There's certainly factors of the mental intellectual um, lack of ability uh, in his case. And you know, it seems almost like, the concept of the victim here is being twisted on its head, right? So the people who are most just and most fortright are the victims. So even I would extend this to Gavin Stevens, who is doing honest work. He's, you know, getting um, Monk out of prison. Of course, Monk is the primary victim of this short story. There's no question about it. Um, but the work that Gavin Stevens does for Monk's case is for naught. And the work that he does to get these very, <laughs> I have the impression, dangerous um, criminals to get them to stay in prison is also for naught. So in that sense, Gavin Stevens is also a victim to the corruption and to um, the misleading political and judicial systems in this world that they live in. So again, this is something we'll hopefully talk about in the next few short stories, is this theme of victimization and who is actually the victim. Some other literature. As always, I love to connect back to other literature, other things that um, I've read or heard about. Um, for example, I read Der Blonde Eckbert in a literature class last semester here in Munich um, by Ludwig Tieck. 
And I thought just the way that, so Der Blonde Eckbert is a Märchen, which is like a, a fairy tale kind of. And, you know, with a lot of like the Brothers Grimm's fairy tales, let's just take Rumpelstiltskin for an example. It's this very twisted off humor or tone about the entire short story. Um, or the story in general, you know, where like at the end Rumpelstiltskin in the original gets so mad that the princess has discovered his name, he stomps into the earth and rips himself in half. And that's the end of the story. Um, and, you know, similarly, Der Blonde Eckbert, there's like murders, there's, you know, things to be atoned for, there's like a big twist at the end, like you know, there's just a lot of um, dark elements in it that really reminded me of this short story to Monk, especially with regard to like how the murders go, how they take place, um, and also the storytelling style. That's a frame narration, um, Der Blonde Eckbert, as this one is not. Um, but I think the distance in narration is something that also reminded me of this Märchen. And in comparison to Smoke in the first short story, I, I will try not to make too many um, intra-textual comparisons within this text. I think there's, there's reasons to do it, of course, and there's reasons not to do it. And I think, you know, each short story stands so alone and due to their differing histories and differing archival resources, you know, that's one reason why these short stories do very much stand on their own, however they are in a collection. So, you know, there's a lot less present in this short story's narration than there is in Smoke. And by, what I mean by that is that there's so much distance on the narration of this particular uh, tale that it very much seems like a recounting of events, uh, something that happened long in the past, rather than, you know, in the courtroom as Gavin Stevens opens the cigar box and there's smoke coming out, you know, like that's so present, that's such a moment-to-moment -moment kind of description. So that's, I think that's the biggest difference between these two, other than the length, of course, um, that I saw, there's still just like a scathing <laughs> review of the uh, judicial system. And I think in terms of the Edgar Allan Poe short stories like Dupont, it's similar in the sense that Dupont also sometimes misses the mark <laughs> on solving his tales. In the literature, he does solve the tales in a very, like, Arthur Conan Doyle type of style, but in reality, Poe was writing about mysteries that were current at the time, and uh, his solutions were insanity <laughs> compared to the reality of them. Um, so I think Dupont, the way those stories the, the way that the pacing of those stories go, it's very, like, meandering, and it's very, like, <laughs> it's not nonsensical, but it has a lot of, like, random dead ends and things, which I feel like uh, Arthur Conan Doyle from the very few Sherlock books that I've read, um, 
there's a lot more like plot elements and things that actually end in something at the end they come up again in other words whereas here in DuPont like there's not always that like direct correlation or tie to earlier in the text which is certainly the case here like um in the third short story in this collection which we'll talk about in the next episode um um in this mini series i mean uh, there is more of that kind of like intertextual problem solving that Gavin Stevens does. Um, but this one, because of the narrative perspective of something so long in the past, something that like the narrator is trying to get a bird's eye view of and solve from that direction, because all the other like more present moment directions haven't worked in terms of making sense of all of this. Um, because of that narrative perspective, there's a little bit less like of the actual crime solving <laughs> that takes place here. And I'll finally leave off with a few comments about the changes that were made within this new edition of the text that are similar to William Faulkner's original intentions for the text. So there was a previously unknown typescript that Duval uncovered in his research on these short stories, um, and that typescript has helped to tremendously uh, edit this short story as we see it in this new collection. So if you reference earlier editions of the text, it might not be the same way in several important regards. First of all, it was heavily cited for offensive language. And that makes sense due to Scrivener's audience and probably also like the print media <laughs> vibe during the 1930s. Like I can't imagine that, you know, they would be super open to a ton of offensive language. The particular instance that most stuck out was a verbalization of the B word, which I won't obviously speak um, for educational. <laughs> this is an educational channel. Um, so yeah, the... Faulkner uses a naughty word as a verb when it's usually a noun in the text, which is like highly interesting from a linguistic perspective. Like that's a really, really cool use of lexicon. Um, and that's something that English is most known for. We can make a lot of nouns verbs without having it be nonsensical. Like to table, for example, like I have a table that I'm recording this podcast from, but also like to table is a verb or like radiator to radiate, like light to light, like there's basically any noun in the English language, like tree to tree, I'm not sure what that would be, like to, to make into a tree or to post to a tree, you know, like there's just this wonderful aspect of English that really goes into um, this verbalization, but so Faulkner utilizes the English language with this very interesting verbalization. There's a couple other notable uh, examples of uh, offensive language in the text that was removed and added back in this new edition. And I think the word was boulderization that Duval used in the introduction with regard to this text, but there was just like huge changes uh, that uh, Schribner's made that were restored in this edition. So that's something I quite enjoyed was to read 
this newer version of the text that was a little bit less boulderized, if you will. I hope you enjoyed the episode on Monk by William Faulkner. I have so enjoyed reading Knight's Gambit. I would highly recommend this edition. Um, This is a University Press of Mississippi edition. It is the one, again, edited by John and Duvall. Such a good edition of this text. Highly, highly recommended. And we have four other stories from this text to go over. The third one coming up in a couple weeks. I've been, as you can tell, pre-recording a ton of podcasts. And I have been doing them in such a way or recording and making notes for them in such and such a way that uh, there won't be too many of these short story mystery tales in a row. So those of you who aren't as interested in this mini-series can go and look at PTA episodes or I'll do an episode on Jane Eyre coming up, I'll do an episode on my circumnavigation coming up. So there's so many different avenues to engage with with the podcast rather than just one series at a time. I also need to go back and make an episode about Martin Chuzzlewit, which I finished ages ago (laughs) and definitely need to catch up on uh, with regard to our lovely Dickens. The last thing I want to mention is that I have started an Etsy shop and it's etsy.com slash shop slash the Elaine edit. And I have taken a passion that I've had for a long, long time, ever since I was 16, 17. Like this is something that I've loved ever since um, around the time actually I started reading so much and I have loved personal finance forever. Like it's just a huge, huge passion of mine. Um, And I've always wanted to figure out some way to help people with their personal finances I am a student, I am very debt adverse, so I don't want to take on any debt, Um, and I've made budget or savings challenge templates for people to track their savings. I use these myself to track um, for the next time I visit John, so it's a very like personal story behind the savings challenges. Um, But there's also a couple like schedule templates and PowerPoints and there's bundles as well. So there's a ton of different categories. I've tried to diversify as much as possible (laughs) using finance term. Um, So I would really, really appreciate it if you could check that out. I won't be mentioning it a ton on the podcast, but I thought I would slip that in there as something that... I have been doing as of late in addition to pre-recording a bunch of these episodes. So thank you so, so much, and I will see you next week. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.